If you would turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, John chapter 11, John chapter 11, and there, particularly, we'll be reading just a portion of this chapter, but let's begin in verse 1. Let's give careful heed to God's holy word, remembering that not only did he give it by inspiration, but he has preserved that down through the ages and brought us together this day. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after he said, uh, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Thus far, the reading of God's word. We will continue a bit farther, but this is a familiar text. I want, uh, you know, show of hands. Have you heard, you read Jesus right, raising Lazarus from the dead? Okay. You better all raise your hands. If not, make sure you're in Sunday school. 
and church Sunday morning, Sunday night. So you, you've heard this. Uh, children, I can remember. Uh, you know, you had the verses that you memorized when you were a little kid. I was a little bit stubborn about all of that. But I am the resurrection and the life. You know, reading that, uh, that sovereign, gracious command, which we'll see in a little while here this morning, Lord willing. And it just makes the hair stand up on the back of your head. Lazarus, come forth. Uh, and it, th- th- this demands the same wonder, the same attention today that it did the day that Jesus uttered it in his ministry while he was below. Every adult here has been to a funeral, right, where you have heard these words of the second person of the Trinity, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And the challenge, do you believe this? The truths and lessons of this chapter are so full of the glory of God and pointing to Christ and of, of, of application to us that we could preach a whole series. And you know how Paul preached till midnight and the guy fell out of the th- I'm not going to do that. We only have one. So what is the history of our Lord leading up to this? Well, the Spirit by John provides... John characteristically provides these wonderful statements and discourses of our Lord Jesus Christ with these tremendous miracles, attesting signs. Uh, You go back to like John 5, here's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he heals a man afflicted for 38 years. And he declares in John 5, 17 and 23, my father has been working until now. Until now, and I have been working, putting himself on the same level of the Father, which the Jews continue to become apoplectic about that. He says that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. Uh, Christ feeds the 5,000 men plus women and children. Okay, youngsters who are here, how many loaves and fishes did the little boy's mama pack him for lunch? Five loaves, right? And... Two fishes. I remember doing a children's message one time at uh, Westminster and I had a little boy and I says, now I've got some crackers here and if I break up these crackers, what are we going to have afterwards? And he said, crumbs. (laughs) He's right. But this is Christ. And it's so wonderful that we read John, uh, excuse me, Genesis one, because here is the creator. And he's able to take five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 men, plus women and children have more left over than he started. He then declares, I am the bread of life. In John 8, he uh, forgives the woman who is in the darkness of adultery, and, and there are no, no, there's no one there to uh, bear witness as in a court of law against her. And so Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He proclaims his word as truth then that will set men free. And he says to the Jews before Abraham was, I am. Uh, the light of the world then gives light to the man born blind. And, and he goes to him after he's been excommunicated for owning Christ, not only as a good man, but a prophet. And now he reveals himself. Do you believe in the Son of God? You have both seen him and it's he who is talking with you. And the man says, I believe. In John 10, 
It's I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. And the Jews gather about Jesus and they ask him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answers them, I told you before and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And ironically, following this, we come to John 11. It's kind of a quick bring us up to the point here. It will be this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead that brings on the ultimate decision about the, by the Jews and their authority structure that this Jesus has to go. He has to be done away with. The same miracle that he performs bringing him from death to life points to not only his own death, but his glorious resurrection. So what is the time of this miracle? The last time reference we have was the Feast of Dedication, which was in December, so about 29 A.D. That would place the raising of Lazarus in January, February 30 A.D., if we've got that timing right. And the place of the miracle. Lazarus lived with his sisters in Bethany. It's about two miles from Jerusalem, and uh, it's called the town of Mary and Martha to distinguish it from the Bethany and Judea, other, uh, other Bethany rather. But first of all, I believe you have an outline of the bulletin. First thing here, genuine believers, beloved of Christ, may be sick and suffer even unto death. Genuine believers, beloved of Christ, may be sick and suffer even to death. Now, other than being the brother of Mary and Martha, the only thing that we know about Lazarus is what you're told here in this text. Jesus loved him. To separate from him from any other Lazarus, he's called Lazarus of Bethany. That name, Lazarus, is an abbreviation of Eleazar, meaning, now get this, he whom God helped. He whom God helped. So, Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, his very name means he whom God helped, is sick, sick to the point of death. Now, that doesn't fit with what a lot of folks think. That doesn't fit with what we're told. You know, the whole name it, claim it, blab it and glab it, God wants you to have your best life now, all of that kind of stuff, which millions flock to and support. That's what all those popular fads declare, but this is very different from that, isn't it? Those things are false. Look more closely. What right thing did Mary and Martha do regarding their brother's sickness? Look in verses 2 and 3. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, to Christ, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, no doubt that they had done all that they could medically for Lazarus, but they didn't forget the one who makes those secondary means to work. The scriptures tell us, and we all know this verse, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, right? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, we, we, we like to sing that old gospel chorus. 
And by the way, thank you so much for your musical offering and helping us sing today. But you know the song, right? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Right. I know that. I know Philippians. You know that. You have those verses memorized. Praise the Lord, you know that great gospel hymn, which embodies so much biblical truth. But there are things that get in the way, right? There are things that scramble our, we should never be discouraged, our prayers, you know, instead of being uh, full of faith and grasping Christ and who he is and what he does, we're more like, you know, Moses has to hold his hands up so that Israel prevails and he's so weak that he has to have a person on either side to help hold him up. Now, there are situations that get in the way of taking it to Christ. There was a number of them. You can see it here. Lazarus may have looked, his whole case may have looked so hopeless, there's no need to bother Christ. Christ had better things to do. He was doing more good where he was. Christ was too far off to come in time or do anything about the situation. Christ would be endangered if he came Remember, here's a note. I don't know if it's in the outline or not, but here's something to remember for sure. The right way for you and I to face any trial, physical or spiritual, is when you see the need to call upon Christ. Now, we all say, you know, prayer. Has it come to that? (laughs) It should be the first thing that we do, right? Don't let anything stand in your way. And you notice that in their request, they do not look to anything for themselves. They don't sort of remind Christ that Lazarus was their brother. Rather, they say, he whom you love is sick. You see, the child of God looks to Christ's free love. Christ in his character, his attribute of loving kindness for his people. That is that attribute that faith seizes upon looking to Christ. You see, if you believe in the free grace, the unmerited loving kindness of Christ, then this will be what you cling to. It's not a prescribing to Christ because we know Christ is gracious and he's wise and he's powerful. He'll do what's best. Now, that doesn't remove such arguments that we may bring. You know, Abraham brought uh, these arguments interceding for Lot, which were based upon God's attribute of righteousness and justice. But what I'm pointing out here is that the path of peace for the Christian is to carry the need, carry the situation to Christ, and trust Him in His wisdom and love. So here's the right thing that the sisters did in taking it to Christ. But also, you notice, and again on the outline, Christ knows the best time to do what needs to be done for his people. He knows the best time to do what needs to be done. Uh, I'll bore you with a quote from Anselm, the greatest fathers in the Middle Ages. He says, God does not delay to hear our prayers because he has no mind to give, but that by enlarging our desires... He may give us the more largely. That's been a comfort to me when I'm taking it to the Lord in prayer and I haven't 
heard anything, or at least what I would consider anything. In verses 4 through 6, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister. Now, if you make sure you got your Bible open and you're reading along with me there, okay? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, look at the text. The Lord acted immediately by preventing the illness from going any further. Is that what it says? No. The Lord immediately spoke the word as he did concerning the centurion servants, and Lazarus was healed from that very hour, like Matthew 8. Say that? No. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. What? Jesus, you should have been here already. You should have been here yesterday. So think with me a couple of things. The Lord does not, his not doing these things, does not indicate a lack of love or protective care for Lazarus and his sisters. Remember, Christ loves his own. God demonstrates his love for us. While we yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the sheep. He died for his bride. Christ loves his own. The love of Christ for his own is consistent, therefore, with what may seem to us in our experience like harsh dealing. He may delay to help. And in some circumstances, that delay may be life and death. Christ knows the best time to do what needs to be done for his people. The best time for his glory to shine. The best time to make his mercy all the more conspicuous. Also think with me. This is not a matter, and you'll be told this, of a lack of faith on the part of Mary and Martha or Lazarus. I remember talking to a uh, young lady, it was many years ago, and it wasn't here, it was in Savannah, whose uh, father was in the hospital. And she th- says, now look, if you have enough faith, he has lung cancer, right? He had one lung removed, and it was a very serious situation. And she says, Daddy, if you really believe, what you'll do is you'll pull this stuff out of, you know, these things out of your arm and put your clothes on, get up out of this hospital bed, and walk out of here. The problem here, my friends, is this. A person may come along and say, oh, well, it's only a lack of faith for me, the reason why I'm not healed. Now, think with me here. If I don't have enough faith to be healed of the lesser thing, physical healing, do I have enough faith for the greater blessing, eternal life? And you will see people who will despair because of the, they're being told, if you had enough faith, you'd get up and walk out of here and everything would be fine. And yet they despair of eternal life. And of course, there's all kinds of problems with this. We're not promised in the same way, physical health, wealth, your best life now, and all of that kind of stuff, like we are eternal life. Whoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. And you say, well, that's theology, and you got to make a distinction, and all that. Well, yes, you do. 
Or else we'd be drawn to despair. Think with me as well. This was not a matter, so it's not a matter of the lack of faith on the part of Mary and Martha Lazarus. As a matter of fact, they're commended as being godly and faithful and sending news to Christ, yet Christ delayed. But then thirdly, this is not a matter of non, the nonsense that God does not rule over the bad things in life. All the affairs of men, families, businesses, church, and nations are in his hand. You remember James descends into the very practical businessman and says, what you should say, not that I'm going to go on this trip, I'm going to make a profit and everything is going to be wonderful. He says, no, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. God says in Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things, all events. Even the most horrendous sin that ever occurred, which was the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, are in the hand of the sovereign God. The Apostle Paul, who humbly labors more fruitfully than they, them all in laying the solid foundation in Jesus Christ, yet has, you know, he, he's been stoned, he's been left for dead, and then he has this thorn in the flesh and he entreats the Lord three times, and Christ's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. So what sustains? Sustaining grace so that we confess whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's and I will seek his glory. This is what sustains the believer. Again, a a bit of a too long a, a quote from Calvin, but Calvin says, As Christ is the only mirror of the grace of God, we are taught by this delay on his part that we ought not to judge God, we ought not to judge the love of God from the condition which we see before our eyes. You hear what he's saying? I don't stand in judgment of the love of God because of the situation that I'm in. He says, when we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance either that he may increase still more our ardor in prayer or that he may exercise our patience. I don't know about you, but I've run into people over the years say, well, I never want to pray for patience because you never know. <laughs> it's not a really a godly thing to attitude to have, but we all know that sometimes God exercises to patience. Calvin goes on to say, at the same time, he accustoms us to obedience. Whether it's good times, bad times, in the middle times, he accustoms us to be obedience. Let believers then implore the assistance of God, but let them also learn to suspend their desires if he does not stretch out his hand for their assistance as soon as they may think that necessity requires. For whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps, never forgets his people. Yet let us also be fully assured that he wishes all whom he loves to be saved. So Christ knows the best time. But then notice as well, Christ's wise, righteous ways, okay, he's righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works, says the psalmist. And here is Christ doing that. That can cause his disciples great perplexity in the building of their faith. Now, there's a double time note here, afterward, after this. Two days have passed. Lazarus is dead and buried. No one's able to be say that Lazarus just fainted or anything like that. 
In verse 7, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples are sure, you know, Christ, have you forgotten? You need to be reminded. Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are are you going there again? What's going on? Are we hearing you right? Are you really talking about going back to Judea? The Judea and their leadership are plotting to kill you. Don't you fear for your life? Is this really prudent? But Christ explains that he is on a mission. He is on his father's timetable in verses 9 and 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, uh, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not him. This is not talking about taking a trip during the daytime so you don't stumble over a root or a stump or a pothole. But this is about... The time that is allotted to me, says Christ, to accomplish my earthly ministry is definitely fixed, just like the daytime is fixed. Your precautionary measure can't lengthen that time. The plots of the enemies can't change that time. I will walk in the light of my Father's definite plan, and in that we have nothing to fear. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Well, that's clear. (laughs) The Father has a plan. Christ is walking towards it. So all of our difficulties disappear, right? The statements in the exchange in verses 11 through 14 show the perplexity of the disciples. He hears the message. He stays two more days. Our friend Lazarus is asleep. I go to wake him up. Well, if he sleeps, he's doing well. Jesus spoke of his death. They thought that he was speaking about taking rest. And then there's that amazing statement, Lazarus is dead. And you read that next thing, you feel like if you were standing there, somebody would have you know, dared, dared to grab a hold of the shoulder of Christ and shake him. I am glad. For your sakes, that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. You see, this is is a, a dynamic situation. We've heard this, we've read this all before, but I tell you, each one of us has walked in the midst of an experience like this. And if you're so young, you haven't quite got that yet. Let me tell you, the day will come. What are we to do? Christians must call into exercise faith and patience in following Christ. Following Christ in obedience to his word is not following the path of least resistance. The path of greatest ease is not necessarily an indication of God's will. Rather, Christians have to call into exercise faith and patience. What does that mean? It means what we have seen. I must realize that Christ knows best by what path to lead his servants. That he is leading you, he is leading me by the right way to the right end. That Christ wisely judges what is best for your growth in grace to make you more like him even when you and I cannot see it. I generally like to, Lord, if you would just give me a short passage I can read, I'll read it, I'll understand it, and we can just go on and we can skip all this experiential stuff, right? (laughs) Lord, we say that we live in a personal 
universe, a personal world, and he is active in his providence for his purposes with his word. This call is not, kind of like Thomas, despair and desperation. Let us all go that we may die with him, you know, doubting Thomas. Well, fixed upon the dangers and fears and doubts, you know, at least Thomas has loyalty, but it's born of distrust. If we wish to have our troubles blessed to us, then we need to walk in faith. Uh, Samuel Rutherford, there was a time when every Presbyterian family had a copy of Rutherford's letters. Some of you are looking at me at who? <laughs> Samuel Rutherford, okay. Uh, way back in the 1600s in Scotland. And his, uh, one of his letters is to a lady, Kenmuir, in Edinburgh, July 28, 1636. And he says to her, he writes to her, And howbeit you get strokes and, strokes and sour looks from your Lord, yet believe his love more than your own feelings. Boy, is that a pastoral challenge or what? For this world can take nothing from you that is truly yours. Death can do you no wrong. Your rock does not ebb and flow, Christ, but your sea. My circumstances up and down and the tides and the winds and the weather and everything else, but Christ the rock does not change. That which Christ has said, he will bide by it, says Rutherford. Let me tell you, it was a man who, uh, his wife died, children died. I mean, when you read something, I don't have time to go into all that, but he's a man who's not just saying, well, you know, you need to buck it up and read the scriptures and be faithful. He had experienced that himself, and he's going to the well of Christ, and he's bringing that to these folks. But then you notice genuine believers and their difficulties. But then we are to adorn our profession of the gospel under afflictions. Now, we've heard of Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In verses 17 through 37, there are numerous instances of our Lord's compassion and love. I want to tell you that Christ is not a fair-weather friend. Does death dissolve the friendship, the relationship between you and Christ? No. Jesus Statement, Lazarus sleeps is certainly borne out. He found that he had been in the tomb four days. Now, as we come, Jesus has come to the location, Mary and Martha, and the mourners and the friends who are about her, them. There is such a thing as being so crushed, so stunned by our afflictions that we fail, we do not adorn our profession of Christ in the midst of that affliction. Now, there's something of this in Mary's conduct. Perhaps she's more contemplative and reserved in character, and it becomes a snare to her, and it made, more difficult, it was more, made it more difficult for her to grapple with the grief, opened her up to melancholy, but by her not going to meet Christ, she misses out. She misses out on hearing the Lord's glorious declaration about himself from 
his own lips. But then you notice that Martha pressed both, expressed both a broken-hearted grief and faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it's, that's an utterance of broken-hearted grief, a bit of disappointment with Christ. Yet what her and her sister had no doubt often said in the days leading up, you know, send to Jesus, send to Jesus. Okay, we sent to Jesus. If only Jesus was here. If only Jesus had been here. If only he had been here. It's like the mourners in verse 37. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Yet when the messenger returned with those words of Jesus, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Don't you know that they had you know, thought about that and wondered and turned that over and over in their minds? And, and it's from Christ's word that faith is sustained in the midst of that, that faith is nourished. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Christ helps us adorn our profession of faith in Him, our profession of the gospel, helps us to adorn it in the midst of affliction. And so our Lord takes Martha's thoughts, and the whole focus has been on the grief, quite naturally, right? They've got a brother whom they love who's sick. They're doing everything for him. He's declining, and at last he dies, and everybody gathers around, and all the focus is on that. But now Jesus turns Martha's thoughts to the resurrection. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. Now, understand we're having an excellent Sunday school class on the uh, Apostles' Creed. Good. Enjoy. Be there or be square, right? Martha confesses what we would say is an article of faith. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You go, good for Martha. That's good. But if you had been here, unless we get what we think of as mercy, we can scarcely be comforted. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She uses the normal form of prayer. Whatever you ask, you get. Sort of the inferior asking the superior. But Jesus uses a different term, which implies equality of the two persons. Somehow she hopes against hope that it's all going to be okay. She has confidence in Christ's prayers, but has an indistinct, a dim view of the reality of who he is as the Christ, the eternal Son of God. There can be true faith and yet a a mixture of ignorance and degrees of faith. She believes in the general resurrection of the last day, but she doubts her brother being raised now. Though she believes in the general resurrection, she makes no mention of the power of Christ to accomplish that. So how does Christ answer this clear mistake, this weakness? Well, there is in verse 25, the statement. Towering proclamation by the Lord of life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Boy, there's my weak faith 
to this glorious Savior. And it's there that I'm enabled to adorn my profession of faith. But then look at the compassion of the Lord of life. Verses 33 through 35, or 33 and 35. Jesus goes, he says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So in the face of this towering, majestic, I am the resurrection and the life, there still remains unbelief. They take him to the place. Verse 38 in the cemetery. Take away the stone. Lord, Lord, wait a minute. By this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus groans in himself, a fellow feeling with our infirmities. He sees the effects of sin and unbelief and the curse in the world where we slowly work ourselves to dust. He sees the hardness and the unbelief of the Jews. Well, surely this man who made blind to see, I mean, if he'd have been here, this man wouldn't have died. He sees the devastation of sin and death, the ravages and misery of sin and Satan and the curse upon this world. Death is not just one of those things. You know, hey, we all live, we all die. The, you know, what goes up must come down. The, the clock just unwinds and all the rest of it. Batteries run down. No, these are the horrors of death, the last enemy. Death which tears us apart, body and spirit. It bereaves us of our closest and most intimate. And this great and holy indignation wells up from deep within the holy Lord of life as he views the broken, war-torn landscape of sin And my friends, I want to ask you, what moves you? What gets a hold of you and turns your stomach? What gives you heartache? Is there a holy revulsion, a heartache over the devastation of sin? I bet you everybody here probably has somebody, may not be in your family, but it's in a friend or something like that, where the devastation of sin has, 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 has crashed a marriage, has tore up a family. And you weep over, gives you heartache, the devastation of sin. My friends... We do not need the trite, the shallow, the biblically unfounded to meet the needs of the day. This is what brought the church to its current disaster. We need the very power of God to salvation. And so I point you here to the matchless sovereignty and compassion of Christ Join with irresistible, almighty power. Dear believer, you must hear this. You must see this. 
Then when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It's literally, Lazarus, hither, out. And what happened? You see it there? He who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. You understand this? This is astounding. The man Lazarus was four days dead, decomposing past all human hope. Only the creative power of God could perform such an astonishing miracle. The same God we read, let there be light, and there was light. The one who stood in the boat and commanded to the winds and waves, peace, be still. There was a great calm. And now he spoke, and that word of God, that command, carries with it the power to bring to pass the purpose of the Almighty. Because here is the Almighty. Here He is. He who is the resurrection and the life is not only the man who knows your sorrows. He knows the groans of devastation of sin and the curse upon it and its effects and has a fellow feeling with your infirmities. But He's also the divine Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. And He has almighty, irresistible power to overcome even death itself. And of course, this points to our Lord's resurrection. Well, let me point out just a couple of lessons here at the very end. There's been some I hope and I pray for you as we've gone through. But here for you and me, believers, is our confidence in the gospel. Here is your confidence in evangelism. Here is your confidence in the success of the reign of Christ. Not some time way off, you know, maybe there'll be a, you know, some kind of a king... Christ's kingdom now. What you pray for, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is, this is confidence in the success of Christ's reign now. The advance of the gospel kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I hear Christians who are not much different in their expectation. They're not much different from their expectation from, from, from the unbeliever who says... You know, if I could have been there outside the tomb of Lazarus, oh, hey, yeah, then I'd believe. If I was there in the boat with the disciples and the winds and the waves and he commands, peace be still, and there's suddenly there's a great calm, oh, yeah, hey, then I'd believe. If I was there when he took the little boy, you know, whose mama had the you know, forethought to, to give the little boy the five loaves and the two fishes. If I could have been there and seen him take five loaves and two fishes, and I, once upon a time I had a, uh, I was doing a children's message, and a little kid, I had some crackers and everything. I said, well, if I break these up, what am I going to get? Are we going to get enough to feed everybody? He says, you'll get crumbs. <laughs> right? But here is the creative power of God. Five loaves, two fishes, 5,000 men, plus women and children. If I could have heard him say, then I am the bread of life. Then, then, then. If I could have seen these things, if I could have been there, then, then, then I would believe. So they will not be persuaded to trust Christ. And my friends, I believe that the church oftentimes is sunk to almost this very level of despairing of really seeing the rise 
of the kingdom of Christ, the advance of the gospel of Christ, the strength of Christendom, the success of Christ's church and kingdom and gospel. To both, I say, who says, well, you know, if I'd have been there, the end of John 11, where Christ raised Lazarus, we are told that some believed, but others plotted Christ's death and that of Lazarus. Here's your hope. It takes the very spirit of Christ who is the resurrection and the life to make a man or a woman to be born again, a new creation brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And this Jesus Christ is worthy of your trust and embrace. Because here you see Christ joining together almighty power and great sovereign authority and great compassion. And he says to Lazarus, these many days dead, you know, remove the stone. Lord, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, if, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying and Christ groans at the unbelief of Mary and Martha. He groans over the hardness and unbelief of the Jews, over the devastation of sin and death, the ravages and misery of sin and Satan, the curse upon the world, the horrors of death. The last enemy, death which tears apart body and spirit, which bereaves us of our closest and most intimate friends and loved ones. The great holy indignation fills and wells up deep within the Lord of life as he views this broken, war-torn landscape of sin. We may well ask ourselves what moves us, what turns our stomach, what gives us heartache. We should have a holy revulsion. We should have a heartache over the devastation of sin. We don't need the trite, shallow nonsense that comes from so many pulpits that does not meet the needs of the day. That's brought the church into its current disaster. What we need is the power of God unto salvation. Here's the compassion of the Lord of life. Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews came with her weeping. He groaned in spirit and was troubled. Jesus wept. And in the face of this towering, I am the resurrection and the life, there yet remains this unbelief Take away the stone. Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Christ groans over the unbelief of Mary and Martha, over the hardness and unbelief of the Jews, over the devastation of sin and death, the ravages and misery of sin and Satan and the curse upon the world and the whole ugly lot, the horrors of death, the last enemy. Death which 
tears us apart, body and spirit, which bereaves us of our closest and most intimate. And this great, holy indignation wells up in the Lord of life as he sees this war-torn landscape of sin. My friends, what turns our stomach? What gives us heartache? Is there not only a holy revulsion, but a heartache over the devastation of sin? We don't need the trite, the shallow, to meet the needs of the day. That's what's brought the church into its current state of disaster. What we need is the very power of God unto salvation. And here is Jesus, the compassionate Lord of life. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. But then behold, the matchless sovereignty and compassion join with irresistible power in Jesus Christ. Now, dear believer, you must hear this. You must see this. Now, when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Literally, it's Lazarus, hither, out. And what happened? He who had died came out bound, hand and foot, grave clothes, his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. The man Lazarus was four days dead. He's decomposing. He's past all human hope. It's only the creative power of God that can perform such an astonishing miracle. The same God who said, let there be light. Who commanded the winds and the waves, peace be still. Now he spoke that word of God, that command. And that command of Christ carries with it the power to bring to pass the purpose of the Almighty. Because here is the Almighty in the picture confronting the great last enemy, death. He who is the resurrection of the life is not only man who knows your sorrows, who knows your groans at the devastation of sin, but he is the divine Son of God, Messiah, Savior, Lord. He has almighty, irresistible power to overcome even the curse of death itself. Now this, of course, points to Christ's own Resurrection. Well, here is our confidence in the gospel. Here's our confidence in evangelism. Here's your confidence in the success of the reign of Christ now and the advance of the gospel kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ at this time. Now, I hear Christians who are not much different in their expectations from the unbeliever. The unbeliever who says, you know, if I could have been there outside the tomb of Lazarus, if I was in the boat, if I could have been in the boat where he stood up and commanded the the winds and the waves, peace be still. If I could have been there when he broke the five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000 and said, I am the bread of life, okay, then, then, then I would believe. And so they won't be persuaded to trust Christ. 
And the church has sunk to that very level despairing of really seeing the rise and the advance of the gospel and the sweeping of the multitudes into the kingdom of Christ and to his church. And to both, I say, not so. To those who say, if I had been there, the end of John 11, where Christ raised Lazarus, we are told that some believed, some, but others plotted Jesus' death and that of Lazarus. You see, it takes the very spirit of Christ, the resurrection and the life, to make a man, a woman, to be born again, a new creation, to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus Christ is worthy of your trust and embrace. Here is the Son of God facing the last enemy. Lazarus, come forth. He speaks and listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. To the despairing church, to the negative church, Jesus Christ has been promised the nations. Shall we not then pray and labor, call upon Him on the basis of these promises, on the basis of a risen Savior as power over death and empowers the gospel to change the hearts of men and women, to bring young people, children, men and women, regardless of their circumstances, they could be dead. Well, hey, aren't they dead spiritually? His gospel is called the power of God unto salvation. Do we have confidence in it? All power in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Shall we not trust him? Let me tell you, be bold in gospel proclamation. Can dead men live? Can dry bones live? Preach. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. You got a family member, a boy, a girl, young person, a grandchild, and you get on your knees and you weep and you say, sin has such a grip upon them, how can it be that they should live? It's by the word of this Savior. This is our confidence in bringing the gospel to friends and family and neighbors, this Christ whose spirit takes away men's stubborn, hard hearts, give them pliable hearts so they must willingly come to Christ. This is our confidence in this Savior. Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection life, raised Lazarus from the dead, yet to a mortal life, because eventually Lazarus is going to die and be buried. However, For all those who know of this spiritual resurrection, who trust in Christ, for all of these, death is but the entrance into glory. For to be absent from the body, it is present with the Lord, present with the multitude of the spirits of just men made perfect. And then, the Christian hope is not exhausted, even with this glorious Reality, Because one day the trumpet will sound and the voice of the archangel will be heard and Christ will come again and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who remain will be caught up and will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and we will be given a resurrection body like that of our Lord Jesus Christ. This mortal must put on immortality, this corruptible must put on incorruption and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and sin and corruption and death The final enemy will be fully, 
finally, forever, overcoming Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we stand amazed. This man, four days dead. (laughs) Don't remove a stone. There's a stench, decomposition. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you'd see the glory of God? Oh, may we trust in you, a risen and ascended, glorified and reigning Christ, that you may pour out your blessings upon your church and the gospel, that men and women and boys and girls, dead in trespasses and sin, blind, they may be made to see, be brought to life, may trust in you, be brought forth unto eternal life, our joy and your glory. Give us this hope in you, the resurrection and the life. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.